Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, John O'Keefe on the inner workings of the brain. Nobel laureate and City College alum, John O'Keefe, traces historic findings on the hippocampus and human memory to his recent research on the brain's cognitive map. O'Keefe, along with two other scientists, won the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovering an inner GPS in the brain that helps navigate surroundings. His engaging and often humorous discussion marked the inaugural Professor Sharon Cosloy Edward Blank Family Distinguished Scientist Lecture at City College. Well, thank you very much, Lisa, for that uh, really generous introduction, and thank you to Tony as well for inviting me to give this very, very prestigious um, lecture. Um, it's great to be home, and it's great to come home in this, in this way. Um, and I'm very uh, grateful, of course, to the, um, to the Blank family uh, to have provided the funds uh, for, this, for this lectureship. Um, I didn't know Sharon uh, Kozloy, um, but I understand that she was not only a great researcher, but a great teacher. And uh, I think we should honor our teachers uh, and, and value them. Um, and as you'll see, um, I had several really inspirational teachers when I was here. Um, and um, some of them were in neuroscience, although we didn't even have the name in those days. Um, but some of them were elsewhere. And, and um, as Lisa said, I, I kind of wasn't a very good student. I didn't put my uh, nose to the grindstone and, and just do biology or just do psychology. I wandered around and did lots and lots of different subjects. And it really is true. I was essentially told, take a degree and get out. <laughs> and it was so traumatic. I went to my psychology professor and I said, what do I do? I don't know how to do any of these other things. I had worked for quite a, quite a while uh, uh, in uh, making airplanes and things like that. So I know I didn't I knew I didn't want to go back to do that. So he said, oh, that's easy. You just go to graduate school. <laughs> so as you'll see in my lecture, I, I, I think I did benefit from taking these other courses. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll refer uh, at, at points to, for example, uh, philosophy courses that I took, which, which were a great inspiration. So I thought I would, um, let me move on here. Um, I thought I would take you back in the first part of my talk can I wander a bit? Can you still hear me? Yeah? Uh, I did turn it on. It's on. Um, I take you back to 1960, um, when we first became interested in this part of the brain called the hippocampus. <clears throat> I'll give you some idea of what we knew about the hippocampus, mostly from human work, uh, and then how I and my colleagues proposed to go about studying it and what we found. And then I'll try to take you through about 40 years of, of history, uh, which kind of will precede a lot of experiments from our own labs and from many, many other labs now. Um, and then towards the end, I'll try to tell you that we're not out of a job yet. We know a lot about how this part of the brain works. Uh, we think we understand enough about it to, for example, uh, begin to use it as a, a good model for studying Alzheimer's, but we still have a lot more to, to learn. And I'll give you some idea, some glimpse of, of where we think we still don't understand uh, as much as we could. So let's go back then to um, the 1960s. Um, when I I wouldn't say I was thrown out of City College. When I was asked to go, go and see, seek my future elsewhere, um, <laughs> I was uh, fortunate enough to get into McGill, uh, which was then one of the top schools uh, for what we call physiological psychology, what we now would call neuroscience. And um, there I came across Brenda Milner, who had been for many years already studying this patient, uh, H.M., whose uh, real name is Henry Mollison. Um, and Henry is probably the most studied patient in all of neuropsychology, uh, because Henry was uh, unfortunate enough to have severe epilepsy, um, which was really uh, put him in a situation where he actually couldn't live a, a normal life. He was having several what are called um, petty mal seizures a day and one or more uh, grand mal seizures, real epileptic fits, um, uh, a week. So he was offered radical surgery um, uh, to alleviate this, and the, the surgery involved removal of structures in the mesial temporal lobe here. This is the temporal lobe here. 
And you can see this great hole here on both sides uh, in comparison with the intact brain shown here. And there was reason for um, the, uh, the surgeon and the neurologist to um, uh, expect that that would have an, uh, an ameliorative effect on his epilepsy, epilepsy and his seizures. And in fact, they did. But on the other hand, when he came around from the operation, he immediately, obviously, had a real impairment of his memory. And he had what was now called global amnesia. He seemed to have forgotten lots of things about his past. He couldn't remember new events. He seemed to be able to remember things like his vocabulary. He seemed to be able to uh, learn skills that he had acquired. He seemed not, on the other hand, to be able to remember the events of his day-to-day -day life. And um, Brenda's student, Sue Corkin, has written a very nice book about him. <clears throat> and I've just taken a quote here to just give you a flavor of what his life was like. And she said, he can't recall anything that relied on personal experience, things he himself had experienced, not things he had read, things had been told him, such as a specific uh, Christmas gift his father had given him. Um, he retained only the gist of personally experienced events. He had plain facts, but no recollection of specific episodes. He had what we would now call a specific severe loss of episodic memory, the problems that um, the, the, the memory you have for your day-to-day -day events. So when I, um, <clears throat> let me just tell you a little bit more about the hippocampus. Uh, here's what it looks like in the intact brain, this uh, yellow, uh, this yellow uh, structure here. Here's what it looks like in this very nice graphic structure. If you look at the cross-section, and this is the only anatomical slide I'm going to show. Um, I've spent 40 years in an anatomy department, so I, it's in my contract. I have to show one anatomical slide for this lecture. Um, if you take a cross-section through this, what you see is this very nice structure shown here in, in this very fancy, multicolored, technicolored pattern here, in which um, you can see the, the structure is extremely exquisite. Um, all of the cells line up together with their cell bodies here. Um, there are only a very small number of cell types in, in, in the system. That's the cells in some parts of it like to talk to each other preferentially, so they actually cooperate with each other in, in very interesting ways, ways which are very interesting to, to people, mathematicians who are interested in how, uh, how uh, cortical circuits actually do their computation. We can break it up into several subcomponents as shown in this cartoon. There are these areas here called the CA fields. This is actually the hippocampus proper here and the dentate gyrus, but importantly, there are other areas which outside of the hippocampus proper which provide a lot of the important information, as I'll show you, the spatial information which the hippocampus uses to create the, 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 the abstract notions uh, about the world that it creates. So I'll just refer to them. You'll hear the, the words again. This is the subiculum, presubiculum, parasubiculum, and the entorhinal cortex. Okay, so knowing that this was a memory structure um, and wanting to try to understand how memory works, I decided it would be a good idea not to work on patients like HM, but to go and try to develop an animal model of memory and look and see what the cells were doing in an animal such as the rat. So what I did was, um, and this is now when I had left McGill and gone to, to University College London, what I did was I developed techniques. It was rather rare in those days to be able to do these techniques, but I, I developed techniques which would enable me to put very fine wires, electrodes, into and close to cells and listen in on their activity as the animal went around its business. So we would put the electrodes in under deep surgical anesthesia, allow the animal to recover, and let it go about its daily business, and just see if we could understand what the cells were interested in. And I was prepared to see all sorts of memory things, all sorts of uh, cells which we'd be interested in, lots of things about the animal's day-to-day -day business. But it turned out that, first of all, it was rather difficult to figure out what the cells were interested in. They weren't firing all the time. They weren't signaling everything about the animal's behavior. They were highly specific. And so for long periods of time, an individual cell would say nothing at all. It would just be silent. And every once in a while, the cell would go, Broop, and it would become active. And it slowly dawned on me until there was one day where I had that magical uh, moment when every scientist has this aha, erlebnis, uh, archimedean thing where you say, ah, I got it. I know what these cells are doing. 
And it turned out that they weren't interested in what the animal was doing in general. They weren't interested in why he was doing it. They were interested in where he was doing the particular behavior. So if he would do one behavior in one part of the environment, cells couldn't care less. But if he went over to another part and did the same thing, the cells started to become active. And here's an example. This is the first uh, example of one of these cells that we published in 1971. This is Jonathan Zestrovsky, who was a master's student uh, with me at the time. And you can see here, by just looking at the, these little spikes here, which show when the cell becomes active, most of the time it's not active at all, but every once in a while they start to give off these action potentials. The cell goes brup, 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 brup. And it's, that's the signal that it's telling other areas in the uh, brain that it's interested in something. And most of the time, it's not interesting. And this is a, a way of, of doing this, uh, this histogram here, which shows the action potentials summed up over a given time. And you can see there are a lot of things that the animal can do uh, when it's over in these areas, A, uh, sorry, C, D, E, and F, over in these parts of the box here, when the cell isn't interested. But when it comes over to this area here, the cell becomes active. And that was characteristic, and I'll show you other cells, of these cells in the hippocampus. The cells are interested in where the animal is. Okay, so I said, well, is this important? Well, I thought at the time, and it didn't take me very long to realize that this could be very, very important. Um, for one thing, there had been um, a bit of work previously um, on uh, the idea that animals had something like a cognitive map. And so what we suggested, even in that first paper, is that maybe this was the neural basis of something called a cognitive map. And the idea of a cognitive map had come from a man called E.C. Tolman, who worked in Berkeley, and he studied rats running in mazes. And there was a lot of controversy uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s about how rats learned a maze. How did they find their way from one part of a maze to another? And some people at Yale, like Clark Hull thought, they learned a sequence of turns. You go down to the first choice point, you turn left, you then go right, go forward, and so on and so forth. Tolman, shown here, thought, no, I think maybe they have little maps in their brain. Maybe they have a little representation of the environment, and whenever they have to go from one place to another, they say, oh, let me call up this representation and plot a route using that representation. So he talked about the whole idea of a cognitive map. He said there's something like a field map of the environment. It gets established in the rat's brain. And, and it's not a question of a simple computer which is flipping switches back and forth. It's a much more complex cognitive representation. And it, it, the, the, the activity coming into the brain is, uh, is worked over into a cognitive-like map. And it is this map which indicates routes and paths and environmental relationships, which finally determines what the animal is going to do. So this was quite revolutionary at the time, because most people thought that the brain work at that time just operated as a series of switches, and all you had to do is connect up one stimulus to one response, and that's how the animal worked. He's saying, no, there's a cognitive representation, a part of the animal's brain, which actually is involved in something called thinking, and that's what it's using. In this case, it's using it primarily to find its way around the world. So a primitive, simple way of thinking would be how you find your way around the world. So I was intrigued by that. I don't think Tolman ever thought that there was one part of the brain which actually was involved in this. I think he thought it was the whole brain. Uh, and here we were looking at something which we thought might be the instantiation. Okay, so um, as, as I said, I think I benefited tremendously from taking courses... Um, you shouldn't get too fancy with your technology. <laughs> You've seen the whole talk. <laughs> so I think I benefited. And one, one of the benefits, uh, and a very important one, was I took a lot of philosophy classes. And I particularly took a class by a man called K.D. Irani, who was a tremendous philosopher of uh, science. And... He used to teach us lots of things, but in one of his lectures, he just mentioned the, uh, the philosopher Stephen Toulmin, who actually was an Englishman who spent most of his life in the United States. And Toulmin actually had thought very hard about the difference, for example, between theories and laws. He was mostly interested in physics, but he had used an analogy, and this is the first time I came across this analogy, about how you could think about theories in science as akin to maps. And you can think about laws as akin to roots. 
and he made, he he kind of fleshed out this whole uh, this whole uh, analogy. And um, although I wasn't sure that his idea about the philosophy of science was right, I did take away this very important idea that there is a relationship between maps and routes and a way in which you could go from one to the other. And, 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 and some of the things he said were very interesting. So he said, first of all, maps weren't, uh, they weren't actually driven by motivation. You don't build a map or you don't necessarily build a map in order to have a specific, satisfy a specific purpose. And that was something I was very intrigued by. You don't need to build a map because you want to get to a particular goal. Map is good to get to any goal that's on the map. So once you know where the goal is, you can use it. It's a kind of very flexible representation. And then he said, well, on the other hand, the tineries uh, can be, you, you can, uh, they, can, they are concerned with specific routes. So if you're sitting here and you want to go to a specific place, you can either use your map and find your way there, or you can use a specific route. And he drew this analogy, and I found that very, and we use that uh, quite, quite a bit um, uh, in, in, in the year. Another philosopher that I came across, and in fact I took a whole course on Kant, uh, and Kant had said space is really one of the important representational properties of the brain. You need to have a spatial system before you can do almost anything else. You need to have a space in which you put all the objects of the world. If you're going to attribute them to the world, if you're going to think, talk about a stimulus, it necessarily is part of a spatial location. And so that that then is suggesting that space and the representation of space is one of the very, very important, very early and very primitive aspects of the brain. So I thought, wow, this could be really, really important if this is the part of the brain which is actually providing the framework within which you're putting all the other aspects of the world that you're interested in. If you want to have a whole bunch of objects and know where they are, you need to put them in a spatial framework. Importantly, Kant said that this framework couldn't be learned by experience of the world. You can't learn to put and create a spatial framework on the basis of experience. It's got to be there in some sense beforehand. Now, he did this purely on the basis of introspection, of thinking about things very deeply. That's what philosophers do. Uh, I've been living with one for a long time. <laughs> uh, so he came up with this idea that, in some sense, this system had to be there before experience. And I won't have time to talk about it in this lecture, but we've taken that idea uh, that, first of all, three-dimensional Euclidean space is a form imposed on experience by the mind. You don't learn it from experience. It's there before you have experience. Uh, and that it's prerequisite to experiencing objects and their motions. In other words, it's there beforehand. And we've done experiments in which we've tried to look at the development of the spatial system in rats over time, and we see that it's there before the animal has had any experience, which is relevant. It's there when the animals are still in the nest. They've never experienced the world before. And we can see not the whole system, but rudimentary parts of the system. So I won't have time to talk about it, but if anybody's interested in that developmental aspect, free to ask me a question. <laughs> okay. Um, now, as before I even got to City College, I actually went out and worked, uh, and I had several jobs. One of them was making airplanes. So I had actually um, spent several years working for Grumman Aircraft, making various kinds of airplanes. And I knew that if you were trying to navigate with an airplane or a, a boat or any, any, any device like that, you had several ways of doing it. You could just look out and see where you were and look at the, the world and see where the objects of the world were and say, okay, I know where I am now. I, I'm here because uh, I have all this information about the objects of the world. There's a door, there's a screen, there, and so on. But I also knew that there were inertial navigation systems. We already had computers which could actually calculate where the aircraft was on the basis of the movements of the aircraft. Uh, once you knew where you started from, you could then use gyroscopes, you could use accelerometers, you could use, um, you could use devices like this, a torpedo tube which measured your airspeed. You could calculate to a fairly high degree of precision where the airplane was. So I knew that there were two ways in which you could calculate where, where you were and where you were going and how to get there. You could either use the information coming in, say the visual cues coming in, or you could have this internal system which calculated where you, once you knew you had started from one place, where you were going to end up on the basis of 
something like vectors which coded for the distance and the direction you had moved in the base. So there was a, a, a real reason to have a very powerful input from not only the sensory system, but the motor system and, and aspects of the motor system, the balance system, the vestibular system. So rather speculatively, um, we suggested that each place cell receives two different inputs. Not just one, but two. And I think this is a rather important point in terms of the whole way the neocortex works. It receives, most neocortical cells seem to receive information not only from the outside world, but also internally about what the animal is doing. And just think about it. If you want to actually keep a, a stable world as you move around, and as I'm moving around, this world is moving, all those visual stimuli are moving enormous uh, amounts on my retina, but the world seems stable to me, and that's because I'm taking into account my own movements. So it's the same thing in the hippocampus, and we've been able to work out a lot of the way in which the hippocampus does it, and we think that's going to serve as a model for the neocortex. So we said, not only can you, not only did you have a lot of stimulant information about the large number of environmental cues, but you also had this navigational system. I just more or less stole it from what I knew about the way airplanes were. Um, so when an animal had located itself in an environment, the hippocampus could calculate subsequent positions on the environment on the basis of how far and in what direction the animal had moved in the interim. Essentially, what we're saying is, if you had a bunch of place representations, you knew you were an A because it had this kind of a representation, you knew you were B here and C here, you could either access them by look, taking information in from, uh, that was there when you were actually in the location, but you could also access them by using a, a set of kind of vector calculations in which you took the, um, uh, sorry, took the, uh, the direction and distance you moved, say, from A to B. This would be a very powerful system, and it would explain a lot about what animals can do and how they can do it flexibly. For example, if an animal was here and it wanted to go to B, it could generate the vector AB. If that route was blocked, it could then do the vector addition of AC and CB and find a different way of getting to the same place. It gives the animal an enormous amount of flexibility. So with that, having said that, let me just give you a little bit more, a better of an idea how uh, we, we thought this was uh, going to work. This is a painting, The Flagellation of Christ by Piero della Francesca. Um, and it's, it's accepted as one of the first paintings which actually shows a veridical perspective uh, drawing. So it gives you the sense of a three-dimensional space using two-dimensional drawing. And you can see how it's done. There are, uh, there are lines going off in the, uh, in the, uh, to the vanishing point. And here, what it's showing is Christ being flagellated in front of Pontius Pilate here, and these three noblemen, these Tuscan noblemen, sort of just conversing about the state of the, state of, uh, the, uh, the, the, the treasury in, 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 I think it was, in, in, uh, it was probably Venice or one of those places. And they couldn't care less, okay? Um, and so... Oh, what I'm using them for is to say, okay, well, let's say this guy wants to know where he is. Well, he knows where he is because he knows his relationship to these various cues. This, this column here, Christ figure, uh, and this building here. He can also then, if he wants to, he can move over to this place. He wants to get closer to this scene. He wants to be more embedded in the scene, to be um, participating in the scene. And so he can just, when he's over here, he could do the same thing. He could look at the various cues. But on the other hand, he could also use this internal navigation system. He could say, okay, I rotate by 180 degrees, I walk a certain number of paces, and then I turn right, and then I go another certain paces. So he can use that internal, and he could do that if he's blindfolded and blindfolded. So we thought about how this system would fit together using these two totally different um, things. So, at, around this time, I got together with uh, another New Yorker. Um, London at that time was, was full of New Yorkers, it still is. Um, uh, a man called Nadell, and we decided that we would try to put a lot more flesh on these ideas. We would try to see, for example, as you would with any theory, could we explain the data that was out there? So there was data out there already about what happens to animals and humans if they have damage to this part of the brain. So we wrote a, a rather substantial book. Uh, we thought it was going to be a short article. It turned out to take about seven years to write it. Um, and in it, we, uh, and this is a kind of a, this is lovely. I've got a two-sentence summary of a, of a 500-page book here. We made predictions. And what we predicted was that if an animal had damage to the hippocampus, it would really have only a very small number of deficits. It would only have deficits in place learning. It wouldn't know it was in particular places in the environment. It wouldn't be able to go from one place to another by flexible routes. 
still have this other root-finding system. It could go down to the corner, turn right, and, and turn left. And it wouldn't have a, an exploratory tendency. And that was one of the important parts of the theory. I won't go into it. But the, one of the important parts of the theory was that this is a cognitive system. It doesn't learn about the world because the animal's hungry, the animal's thirsty, uh, the animal wants to have sex, and so on and so forth. It doesn't learn on the basis of biological need. It learns because it has a whole system built in it which drives it to learn. And that's what exploration is about. If you put an animal in a new environment, even if it's hungry, even if it's thirsty, it goes around and it sniffs around. And it looks around and it follows the whole thing. And it takes a long time uh, to, to figure out where everything is. And then if there's some food there and it's hungry, it goes and eats. But it does this exploration first. And it makes sense because it now knows where everything is in that environment. So if it comes back to it, it's already done the hard work. It has all the information it needs to satisfy any of its biological needs. So evolutionarily, it's a kind of a clever idea. If you can have the, uh, it's in a sense, it takes a lot of guts for evolution to take this step. It has to sort of have the confidence that knowing about things just for their own sake are really important. We also said that, hey, if this isn't going to work, there have to be a lot of other spatial signals. Having found these cells which are interested in just places, that's not going to work. You need a lot more information. You need to have, for example, information about distances and directions and all these other things which we had supposed you need to build a map. If you just have a bunch of place representations, okay, I know I'm here, okay, I know I'm here, I know I'm here, but I don't know the connection between them. I don't have a map. A map is an interconnected set of places, and they're connected by those vectors representing distances and directions. Okay, well then, fast forward, and now I'll take you through 40 years of, uh, of, of work trying to sort of test these predictions. And some, most of them are... It's not for me to say how many of them are correct and how many are incorrect, but it's, a lot of them actually have been, been verified. Um, one of the first things that was verified is that animals with damage in this part of the brain can't actually navigate very well. And around 1975, a very bright student, uh, Richard Morris, he was a lot younger looking in those days, came into our lab and said, okay, you guys really believe these animals can't navigate. I'm going to design a, a, a memory test which shows you're wrong. Um, and so he came up with something called the Morris Water Maze. Uh, which is essentially, as I'll show you, I'll show you a video in a second, which is essentially a tank of water uh, in which there's a hidden platform. The animal can't see the platform. He's, this is a, I think this is a rat. Uh, he's placed into it, and he swims around until he finds a platform. He wants to get out of the water and stand on the platform. By the time he's been given about eight trials, he goes straight directly from the... Uh, any place he's put down in the, this uh, uh, water bath, swimming pool... Um, Richard's uh, sister once said, Richard has is, is actually been very successful, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society. So his sister said to me when he was elected, did he get elected for devising a rat swimming pool? <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's the simplest bit of testing apparatus that there could possibly be, but the idea behind it is really, really ingenious. Okay, uh, it turns out that if you make hippocampal lesions, that the animals really have a tremendous difficulty learning what's for, for a normal rat, a very simple, very simple task. Let me just show you a, a video. So here's what it looks like in the real world. Put the animal down in the, in the water. He swims. And this is an animal we've learned. He swims directly to the past. See a little wet. It's happening. Now you do a dirty trick. You press the, the platform down so it's not there when you get there. He knows where to go. You put him down someplace else. And he goes directly to the right place. But there's no platform. So now he says, wait a minute. And he starts swimming around and around and around. Over the years, we thought, I'll just show you one or two more clips of behavioral stuff. Over the years, we thought, this is a really nice way of testing for damage in this part of the brain. But it's not telling us exactly what's going on in the animal's mind. And what we would like to know is, at any given place in the maze or in the testing apparatus, does he know where the goal is? Does he, I mean, it looks like he's heading straight towards it. So does he have a system which says, I know the goal is over there? 
So we've gotten quite a long way to coming up with a new testing uh, situation. It's a dry version of the water maze. It's a set of um, 37 platforms. Each one of them is on a piston, so it can be raised or lowered. And you can see here's one raised here. And if the animal is on this piston, you can raise a couple of other platforms for it so that it has a choice. So that any part, where the, no matter where the animal is in the maze, you can give him, you decide which choice he has. So you've made it into a very simple, but very powerful, I think, way of testing what the animal knows. Can he only go directly towards the goal? So let's say the goal is over here, and I'll show you a video in a second. Or does he know that, for example, going in this direction is better than going in another direction towards the goal? Does he have this vector system, which is actually telling him how, what's the direct pointing to the goal, and which is the next best or the least worst uh, pointing to the goal? So let me show you um, a, a, a video. And I, I think you'll see what I mean. Uh, this is still work in, um, in development. So here's an animal. You can tell it's a real lab, right? Look at all these things hanging all over here. There's no, nothing fancy about it. This is how we do it. There's a goal over here where he wants to go. And he starts from here. And then he's going to be given a succession of choices. And he's going to show you by his behavior that he knows where the goal is, and he also knows what the next best way to go. If I'm only giving him choices, he's going to tell me, okay, I don't like this, but I'm going to go uh, to the next best one. And at that point, I feed him. <laughs> so we really aren't so nasty. We do, we do feed him. Okay, so let me quickly then whiz through a whole series of, of experiments. I won't tell you the, the details of these, but just to abstract from them what our knowledge of the, of the cells in this part of the brain are doing, and whether they provide the information which would, in fact, allow an animal to do that, to know the heading direction to, to, to the goal. And to, just to, to summarize, this is the hippocampus again. We know that there are place cells which are actually uh, localized. They, they, they tell the animal where it is in an environment. We know that there are cells which tell the animal how close it is to particular boundaries or borders of the environment. And these are cells which are actually used to abstract the, the visual uh, and other kinds of information from the environment. These are the cells which are telling him, oh, you're so far away from that wall. Um, we also know that there are head direction cells, which is signaling the direction in which the animal is, is pointing, so that he knows when he's pointing north or east. Now, it's not geomagnetic. It's, it's a, a calculation, not unlike the place cells, where he, the system is saying, okay, there's information out there. I'm moving in a certain way. It's a very complex calculation. We don't know exactly all of the principles. And then there's the grid cells, which we think are actually, uh, and I'll show you a little bit more about these, uh, providing the information about how far he has gone in a particular direction. It's like a Cartesian grid laid out on every environment that the animal goes into and which actually is providing something like a metric. So we have a lot of different kinds of cell types. You need all of them. We're not sure we have all of them. We know that there are other cells measuring the animal's speed, how fast he's running, so that he can integrate that and, and, and perhaps uh, use it to, to construct information about, about distances. Okay, uh, I'm, I'll just show you a, a, a video of, of, of a play cell, and then I'll, I'll skip some of the videos because I'm running a little late. So this is just to give you some idea what one of these play cells looks like. He's running around. He's looking for food which is thrown randomly into the environment. And you can see the cell doesn't care about any of these over here. just cares about this little patch over here. And it doesn't make any difference how he runs through that patch. He can run north, he can run south, he can run east, he can run west. So it's, a comp it's not just when he gets through this part of the environment, there's a visual stimulus which falls on its retina and which then activates these cells because he, he can turn around 180 degrees and it still activates the, the, the play cell. So you can see it builds up over time. And this is what, how we portray them. We show them as, as a, a heat map. With the, um, and you can see it's a nice structure. It looks like a two-dimensional Gaussian um, in which the, the center firing rate, 7 hertz, um, is shown in red, and, and then the warmer uh, colors represent lower firing rates. So it's a very nice structured um, uh, map of, of, of where he is. And if you have several cells at the same time, uh, and in case this here is 32, we're now developing technologies which will record, enable us to record from hundreds and thousands of these cells at the same time. Because we think that the, the, the actual representation 
is carried by the difference between the cell firing patterns. It's a pattern code. But if you look at 32 of them, what you see is that they all have their own little area that they prefer, and um, they prefer different areas. And it doesn't take more than 32 cells to cover an entire space. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of cells in, the, in this part of the brain, and you only need a very, very small proportion of them to, to tell the animal where, where it is. So these are the basics, the basis for the places in a map. And if you put an animal in two environments, some of the cells fire in one and not in the other. Some of them fire in the second environment, not the first. And some of them fire in both environments, but in places which are hard to predict. It looks like it's hard to predict which cell is going to fire where, knowing where it fires in one environment, where it's going to fire in an environment. So here's a bunch of cells that fire in a circle, but not in a square. Here, one's firing in a square, not in a circle. Here's cells that fire in both environments, but in different places, and there's no mapping from one to the other. It looks as though any cell can choose where it's going to fire in a particular environment. We don't understand exactly what the mechanism is, but you can't predict from one environment to another. And in this case, this is, this is a, almost a control. There are some cells which do fire in the same place, and that's because these boxes are in the same part of the environment, and we think these cells are telling the animal where it is in the greater environment, in the room. Okay, well, the cells are three-dimensional. Most of our work in, in rodents is in two-dimensional, it's on a plane. If you want to study some, some three-dimensional aspects of a spatial system, you better look at it in an animal which has a three-dimensional existence. And in this case, it's a bat. So um, uh, Nakamul Anofsky in, in, in Israel has been looking at bats, and you can see he's got a, a thing on the animal's head which enables him to, to record from, from cells in the bat hippocampus. And sure enough, these cells have a three-dimensional structure. They look, they occupy a volume of space. And if you look at a bunch of them, um, they all do exactly, they tessellate the space in exactly the same way as the, the rat ones do in two-dimensional. So we think they're, and we think they're three-dimensional in a rat, but it's, it's much more difficult to, to, to study them in a rat. Okay, so uh, I just want to show you one of our recent experiments. If we believe that these cells are being addressed by two very different types of information, one of them the visual inputs that the animal gets from where it happens to be, and the other, something about its own path movements, its own movements, which provide it with information about how far and in what direction it's gone, then we should be able to separate these two inputs. We should be able to show that some cells are getting one, some cells are getting others, and maybe others are getting a combination of two. It's been very difficult. It's, we've tried it with animals running on, on tracks, uh, we've tried so that we could dissociate how fast they're moving in the environment with how fast they think they're moving, things like that. It's only because recently we've been able to uh, reproduce a, 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 an experiment that was done in Princeton by uh, <coughs> David Tank's lab, in which he's created a virtual reality environment for rodents. So our group has had a, a long history of using virtual reality to test humans, and we test humans uh, both uh, ones with hippocampal damage. We're also interested in testing humans who have um, uh, early onset uh, Alzheimer's and, and things like that. So we have a lot of experience with using virtual environments to have humans uh, navigate in really large-scale environments. And so we can create spaces which are 70 meters by 70 meters and get people to sort of navigate in those spaces and show that the hippocampus is involved in those. Over the years, my colleagues on the, the human side have always said, can we do this for rats? I said, no way. No, 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 you won't have the foggiest idea. How would a rat understand what a virtual world looks like? Well, it turns out that they actually are very good at it. They understand virtual worlds probably as well as, as, as our human subjects. So what you do is you put the animal on a, a styrofoam ball, and the ball turns because it's on an air cushion, and you can tell how fast the ball is turning using just a simple VR mouse, uh, 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 sorry, a PC mouse. So as the animal runs on this ball, the ball turns, the animal doesn't go anyplace. Um, and it thinks it's going someplace because there are two video screens here and you actually display the environment on the screens. So the animal, and here's a screenshot, as the animal is sitting there, he's run on, on, on this treadmill or this ball and he's moving down this environment. Um, and I should be able to show you what that looks like, if it works. So here he is, he runs down, and you hear one of these play cells actually firing in, in the environment. It takes a while. Here he's running down. He's, so this is actually 
this is a picture of what that he sees on the video screen. He's going here because he's going to get fed down here. So there's a cell that fires halfway down the track. And that gives us a lot of control over actually what is causing these cells to fire. We represent, he's going to do it again for you, just to show you it's repeatable. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so we represent this whole environment as this yellow track here. There are cues represented by these different stimuli here. Um, and we can ask questions like, can we find place cells other than this one there? Is, that, is it reproducible? Can we, can we uh, see whether it's the visual stimuli? How, what's the component? Uh, what are the different components that you go into telling the cell the right place to fire? Well, it turns out that it's as easy to find, in fact, almost easier to find these place cells in this artificial environment than in the real world. We've done it, recorded from cells in both environments. Uh, and they're reproducible. You can do it over days. So here's one firing in the middle of the track. Here's another one firing at the end of the track. You can ask the question, is it the visual cues? And for about a large percent of them, they need that visual information. There's not much else in this environment. It's just a bunch of visual cues and what his movements are. So it might not be a big surprise. But here's a cell, for example, where fire is about in the middle of the track. We take away all the visual cues. Cell stops firing. It turns out that it's the cues on the side. So rats have their eyes looking out that direction. They're, they're, they don't look forward. They're, they have eyes which are primarily interested in what's happening on the side. And it turns out that that's where the information is coming from. We can also do the opposite. We can say, OK, do you really need to run down this environment? Suppose we just sit you on the ball and move you passively. And we can find cells which fire if he runs down the environment here. And then we passively move him at about the same rate. And there are some cells, only about a quarter, which actually will fire just on the basis of the visual information alone. And then we can show that it's reproducible. That's not the whole story, because we can do what I think is a really important experiment. We can say, if we put you down at the beginning of the track. We show you where you are. And then we take the cues away the minute you start to run. Can this internal system for monitoring your own movements update your location? And the answer is yes. Here's a, here's a baseline trial where all the cues are there. The animal runs down the, uh, the track, and there it is, cell firing. We get rid of the visual cues, cell stops firing. And here, these are the firing rates. So you know, this, not only does it stop firing in the right place, but the rate drops. We then put him down here. The minute he starts to move, we turn off the lights in the area where the cell likes to fire, and the cell continues to fire. So the animal and the hippocampus can actually say, I know where I am. I know I'm walking in a certain direction at a certain speed, so I'm going a certain distance, and the cells will fire. They can use that internal system for updating the, the rap representative. The um, I won't go to, I won't show you any videos of these. Um, other cell types have been discovered some in our uh, environment, some in other environment. Uh, sorry, in other laboratories. The, the head direction cells were discovered by uh, Jim Ronk, who uh, is, is still working down uh, the road here in Brooklyn and downstate. Um, and he had a lot of help from Jeff Tauby and Bob Muller, who sadly died um, uh, a, 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 a few years ago. And I should say that Bob, um, I, I knew Bob from his days at City College because he was here as well. Um, it's a, there's a kind of a I won't say it's, uh, it's I won't say it's a, a club, <laughs> but every once in a while we come across it. We were at City College, and in fact, Bob used to, he was in biology, and 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 people, uh, some of my instructors used to say, "You should be like Muller. He's a real scientist." <laughs> <laughs> so Bob was recording from the frog sciatic nerve when I was <laughs> still <laughs> still in diapers. Um, anyway, the three of them came up with uh, this discovery that there are these direction cells which actually respond when the animal is looking in a particular direction. Not when he's in a particular place. They don't care about places. They're the obverse of the place cells. So as an animal is going around, he says, oh, that's my direction, and the cell will just fire there. And then he goes to the other end of the room, and the cell continues to fire in that direction. And it lays out this parallel set of vectors across the environment. That's providing at least one component of this inertial navigation system. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip the boundary vector cells. They were discovered by us. And these are cells which essentially just tell the animal how far it is from uh, an environment. And together, uh, a group of them can provide, can provide a place. Because I want to talk a little bit about the, how distance is measured in, in, in the system. And 
if you think about it, there are lots of different ways in which you could measure distance. You could do it the way um, Blake's Isaac Newton was doing it with this set of calipers here. You could lay them out on the environment and say, okay, this is the, the, difference, this is the difference between these two points. That's the distance. Or you could lay out a grid, as shown in the Liechtenstein paper, uh, that picture here. This is uh, yellow cliffs. And a grid is a really neat idea, because what the grid does, if you look at this uh, grid, it's a set of hexagonal uh, or triangular, if you want, points. And you can actually climb up the cliff in this direction by following this row of points. Or you can tell how far you are in from the, from the edge by following this row of points. Well, as we all know, art always uh, provides the answer before science. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's the Liechtenstein uh, uh, idea, which is actually the correct one, um, because we now know that in this part of the hippocampal structure, the entorhinal cortex, there is a grid structure which looks exactly like the Liechtenstein uh, uh, dot system. And this is... Um, what we call the, the grid cells. They were discovered by the Mosers, who were uh, co-awardees with myself uh, in, in getting last year's Nobel uh, Prize. It's actually discovered by their students uh, and, and, uh, together with them. And what they are is a set of, uh, a set of cells which lay out this grid-like structure across the, uh, uh, across any environment. Um, and if you look at it, you know, you can see the, you can characterize these cells by having a distance between the two, um, the two peaks here. They're kind of like a whole bunch of play cells with this absolutely or orderly, symmetrical, hexagonal structure. And you can characterize them by having an angle. Um, and I won't show you the video because we're running late. Interesting, um, and this will be of interest to, um, to the physicists amongst us, Tony, <laughs> the, the, the actual metric of the grid structure is not continuous. We know that there's some relationship between where you record each one of these grids along the structure in the internal cortex here and the spacing between the grids, but it's not a continuous change. Any given animal will only have four different spacings. As you can see here, for example, here's cells with a very narrow, small spacing of about 30 centimeters between the peaks, and then it jumps to a slightly larger one. In fact, you can see the, 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 the numbers here. It jumps to something which is about 45, and then it jumps to uh, something which is about 65, and then about 100 uh, centimeters. So some way or other, the brain is quantizing the metric, and the mathematicians are having a field day with this. They say, this is great. This is exactly what you'd want uh, if, you were, if you wanted to have the optimal way of coding for uh, distances in, in, in an environment. Okay, and you can take these grids, and uh, if you have two grids of different scales, a small scale and a large scale, you can produce a place cell by just adding them together, essentially, and, and, and thresholding them. Okay, um, life is never so easy, and in the last five minutes, I'll tell you why we're not going to be put out of business anytime soon. We would like to believe that the grid system is a universal metric system, a Cartesian grid. And in many instances, if you take an animal from one environment and put it to the other, it all stays the same. But if you have clever students, in this case, uh, my, my, uh, my uh, postdoc student, Julia Krippich, and they push really hard and they say, you really believe this is a universal Cartesian system? And the answer is, it's not really. And there are exceptions to it, and we don't understand the exceptions. So I'll just leave you with one bit of information which shows you where we think the field is going. The first thing is that she showed is that the boundary and the shape of the environment is very important. So if you look at a grid like this, you're not seeing very much of it, and you just rotate a square box, the, the grid structure rotates with the square box. So if anything, it's dependent on the structure of the environment. But more importantly, if you not only reco record from this beautiful symmetrically hexagonal grid structure in a square box and then record in something which is not so symmetrical, an environment which is, for example, trapezoidal, what you find is that the trapezoidal structure of the environment distorts the grid. So that something which was a beautiful grid structure, as shown by, and I won't go into this, this is the order, spatial order correlogram, a beautiful structure in a square begins to get a bit wonky in a trapezoid, and it begins to get elliptical, and our measures of how good this is as a Cartesian metric system begin to fall apart. So where it was really good here, you could tell you had gone a certain direction, uh, a certain distance in a certain direction in this box, you can't do it here. 
the, the, the distance between these two is very different from the distance between these two and so on. So we don't exactly understand what the, the rules are for this fantastic grid structure to be produced. We know that the shape of the environment is important. It may only work in some environments. On the other hand, it may be that this is correct, and the animal can use this. I mean, there's in psychology, going back to my old roots, there's something called the Ames Room, where you can produce perceptions, distortions of perception of space by modifying various aspects of the environment. It may be that we produce a, a, a perceptual illusion here, and that we have to take into account not only what the cells are doing, but what the animal's thinking. And so one of the things we have to go back to now is it's getting much more better information about what the animal is thinking. Okay, I won't go into what, what's happening here. Uh, it, you can see what's happening is that as the uh, trapezoid begins to narrow, it's distorting the grid by kind of bending it and stretching it. And so, again, the mathematicians are, are getting really excited about this, and, and we're trying to come up with parametric experiments which actually try to um, show us how that, how that happens. So let me summarize then. I've run a little bit over time. We think the hippocampal formation provides a cognitive map of a familiar environment. I won't tell you what happens when the animal goes into the environment. It has to build the structure. We're interested in that. How do you build the structure? But of a familiar environment, uh, the animal can use it to tell where it is and how to navigate. Um, there really are two independent strategies. They talk to each other a lot, and they interact with each other. One being, take the information in from where you are, look at the world, see where you are, triangulate between different stimuli. But the other one is this internal system. And I think this is a general rule. I think this is going to be true for all neocortical systems. I think it's, it's taking information about what you're doing. And actually, this is abstract information. It's not which muscle you use, which limb you use. It's information about things, abstract ideas like distances. There aren't distances in the real world. So you have to create the concept of distance. And directions, and you have to do the same thing with them. Finally, I guess we have a lot more to learn about the properties and roles of these cells. We're not going to be out of business, as I say, tomorrow. Uh, and let me just thank all the people who've done the work. I've mentioned most of their names as we, we've gone through. Here's a, here's a picture behind Griffin, who's done all the work on virtual reality of the actual apparatus. Um, and then finally, thank you to all of the people who have uh, contributed to our work over the years. We're always grateful to have funders. Um, I just special mention to the Gatsby Foundation and the Wellcome Trust, who've provided a considerable amount of money to, to create the well, Sainsbury Welcome Center, which, as Lisa said, I'm, I'm now the director. And here's the building. We built a whole purpose-built building for the study of neural circuits and behaviors. We're actually going to be using all the new technologies, laser-based technologies, using silicone probe technologies, all of the great Wizzo, Bango, wonderful things that are coming to us from physicists, chemists, uh, and molecular biologists. And if there are any students out there who want to come and have a, have a go, write to us and tell us how you do it. That's my adverse, advertisement. Thank you very much for your attention. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.